Episode 206 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by cloud accounting software FreshBooks with a free 30-day trial available for you right now. Access to all their features? Just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead to find out more and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. The brain processes so much information on a second-by-second basis that if it were literally thinking about everything all the time, we'd need to have brains bigger than our bodies and we wouldn't be able to get anything else done. Thanks for stopping by. I plan to make it worth your while. This is the Read to Lead podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Brown, and I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow this important reading list, but bring you key ideas and valuable insights from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. In just a few minutes, you and I get to sit down with Ellen Petrie Leance. She's the author of The Happiness Hack, How to Take Charge of Your Brain and Program More Happiness into Your Life. I'm all about that. I'll ask Ellen to share about the impact technology is having on our ability to make real connections, simple steps you can take every day to foster real connections, one key thing successful people have in common, and much, much more. Now, I don't need to tell you that tax time is here, but with that, of course, oftentimes can come lots and lots of paperwork, like the kind that you have to dig yourself out from under. I stopped doing that a long time ago when I began using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, and I highly recommend you do as well if you're not already. Not only is FreshBooks going to save you a ton of time and stress, FreshBooks might actually change the way you feel about dealing with your taxes. No joke. If you've got to send your accountant a quick summary on the amount of tax you've collected last year or pull together a profit and loss summary, FreshBooks can generate these reports in seconds instead of the hours it would take for you to do them manually. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, which means next time you use your debit card for a meal, a tank of gas, a new computer, the purchase is recorded instantly in FreshBooks. It's one of my favorite features. All this and FreshBooks is super simple to use. In fact, it's made especially for people who don't like dealing with numbers or their taxes. That would be me. Right now, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial. And to claim it, you just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. That's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. And then once you're there, enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Ellen Petrie Leant teaches, coaches, speaks, and lives with conviction that brain aware practices elevate mastery and satisfaction in all aspects of life. Today, she focuses on sharing these practices through her work as a leadership coach, as an author, and as a globally followed keynote speaker. A 35 year veteran of Silicon Valley, she spent nine years at Apple where she served on the Macintosh launch team and created the company's first online presence back in 1985. Now, since then, she's worked at or with companies including Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and dozens of others to make innovation more meaningful and understandable to technology users everywhere. A TEDx speaker, Ellen's view on happiness by design has helped viewers around the world understand the ease and benefits of bringing gratitude practices to their lives. Her book is called The Happiness Hack, How to Take Charge of Your Brain and Program More Happiness in Your Life. Ellen, I want to officially welcome you to the Read to Lead podcast and let you know how excited I am to to have you here. 
Oh, thank you, Jeff, and I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for such a, a warm introduction. I'm honored. Well, I don't say this about too many books. In fact, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've said this in the last uh, four and a half, almost five years. But one thing that immediately sets your book apart is the look and feel. Um, this is a book that I love to hold in my hand. This is a fantastically designed book and was an enjoyable read, not only because of the writing, but just because of the pages, <laughs> literally. <laughs> well, thank you. I give so much credit to my publisher for that. And in fact, their design aesthetic and the priority that they placed on visual design was one of the things that made me really want to work with them. Mm. You know, um, if we think about the brain, the brain activates more fully when it is firing multiple pathways or cognitive centers and bringing visuals and colors and fonts and sort of breaks into the flow of a book really changes the way we read and absorb the information. So I felt it was um, really neat to look at it as a unified design concept that included both visual work and written work and, of course, some pretty nice quotes from people who uh, who have lived very meaningful lives. So thank you for saying that. I'm glad they all came together for you. Well, for, for many of the reasons you just stated, it, it, I prefer uh, a physical book over an ebook or even an audio book, though I enjoy all formats uh, when necessary. Uh, is it safe to assume your preference is, is for the physical? That would be, although time, of course, is always an element. So my absolute winning combination is a physical book. And then if I really love the book, I do it as an audio mm. as well. Um, and the reason is, I, I don't know, maybe some people won't like this, but I like to write in books. I like to annotate and reflect on them. And I even have a few books I've come to over the years that I've written in over the years and sort of have a, a dialogue of my learning and how the books have influenced me. Well, let me just say my copy of your book is is well marked up at this point. Yay! <laughs> Sounds like that's Good, okay with that's you. wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I'd love to see a picture of a page, Jeff. That sounds pretty neat. Uh, you got it. I'll be sure and, and, and do that right after we finish. Well, I want to kind of start by having you share about some of the, the big questions you had and the struggles you were facing a few years back that you talked about early in the book that, that ultimately led to you wanting to, to write the book, the sense that I mean, everybody around you had it together and, and, and you were sort of in the minority. Well, you know, that's one way to look at it. But the funny thing is, so many people that I talk to feel that exact way. Mm. We kind of feel that there's something that works and we haven't quite figured it out yet. But if we keep trying and trying and doing more of what other people do, then maybe it'll sooner or later make sense. And it's funny, I, I've written an article that's called The Myth We Build Together. And there is a myth that there's this way to live life where it makes sense and feels great and everybody else but us is doing it. Mm. And my experience is that's not really true. And in fact, I have seen over the past years, people become more open and vulnerable in, in talking about the fact that there are challenges and struggles. But very specifically, what I experienced was this, Jeff, I felt that, that myself and also people around me were reacting and regretting. They were doing things in the moment that they would look back at and say things like, I don't know why I did that. Or, you know, maybe they lost their temper or maybe they made a bad decision. Um, and they were regretting. And I, I began to really question what is going on that there is so much of that react and regret. And by that time in my life, I studied a little bit of neuroscience. It's been kind of a, a biology's always been a hobby for me. And I'd studied a bit about the brain. And 
I started realizing and really thinking about that there were cognitive processes that might be running in reactive ways that weren't activating the prefrontal cortex, which is the brain's, it's really the, the most human, if you will, part of the brain, the home of our highest cognitive processing and mood regulation, critical thinking, long-term planning, and really to some extent self-awareness. And I started thinking, why don't, you know, why do we do this, this these fast reactions rather than take a moment to shift gears and move more toward the PFC. And I began studying more to develop a, a deeper understanding of that. And shortly thereafter, Daniel Kahneman's book, it's a behavioral economics and psychology book called Thinking Fast and Slow came out. And it gave me a profound aha that there was something to this thing that I'd kind of guessed at. And interestingly enough, I found very similar sorts of teachings in Buddhism, in the, the Buddhist writing about the reactive versus the responsive mind. And so these things started to fit together in interesting ways that made a tremendous amount of sense and I started trying to practice them and after a surprisingly short amount of time I felt that my life had gotten easier and better. I was in conflict less. I felt I was making better decisions. I was learning more about the people and situations around me and that's when I started doubling down and creating the framework that eventually became this book. Is this what some would term and maybe you term uh, what is in essence mindfulness? Is that ultimately what you're what you're getting at? <laughs> I love it. Yes. The short answer is yes. But the, the funny thing is, is I wanted to write a book about mindfulness that wasn't necessarily called mindfulness mm. because we seem to have this sort of collective agreement about what mindfulness is. And sometimes people are not that interested in what that collective agreement means to them, whether it's accurate or not. So although the book does use the word mindful a couple of times and maybe mindfulness once or twice, it really is a book about the neuroscience of mindfulness and training the brain to get more of what we want out of life. Well, let, let's dig into that a little bit because this if this topic fascinates me. How how do brain chemicals, both the, the neurotransmitters and, and hormones, affect things like happiness, health, and, and social interactions ultimately? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is that the, the chemicals and modulators have a tremendous amount to do with it. Um, there are other factors as well. You know, we each, every brain has a tremendous, uh, brains are as individual, many say, as fingerprints. There's a very high genetic and even epigenetic degree of, of biological contribution to what a brain is. And then there's also a huge component of subconscious processing, primarily in the limbic system. Uh, much of that formed by things that we have no access to or awareness uh, of. It's, it's sort of our, our very conditioned and sort of um, kind of the things that we're blind to in a way. The, the, the information we assume as we navigate life and think and make decisions. And, you know, that's essential. There's nothing wrong with anything there. The brain processes so much information on a second-by-second -second basis that if it were literally thinking about everything all the time, we, we, we'd be, you know, we'd need to have brains bigger than our bodies and we wouldn't be able to get anything else done. But the brain is constantly running its 
perceptions and and kind of the input through the senses of what is going on in the world around us, be that visual information, you know, interaction with other people, other environmental stimuli, or even motor experiences. It's running that on routines that are highly, highly efficient so that it conserves energy for that thing that it believes is always about to happen, which is a saber-toothed tiger is about to jump out of the bushes. The brain is optimizing its, its, its processes to conserve energy for emergencies, survival-related emergencies. And if we think of early human history and early mammalian history, of course, it had to be that way. Only those who managed to run away from the saber-toothed tiger were the ones who managed to make it home to the cave that night to, you know, for, for whatever they did that night, we can thank them because, because of it, we're here. So the brain is always running these routines, and that is based on a combination of both our, you know, our genetics, our, our, our brain biology, but also on the electromagnetic currents that are flowing through the brain through different sorts of cognitive and other cycles, and then also through the chemicals that are responding and reacting to stimuli from the environment around us. One of the things I have learned, I think, Ellen, from, from 17, almost 17 years of marriage is that my brain needs to start treating anything my wife tells me as survival related. So now I have to say uh, words I use in the book. I'm curious. What does that mean? Uh, well, I often forget things that she tells me that she wants to remember. And I think the problem is my brain not mapping properly the things that she tells me. I, mean, I think in the back of my mind, my brain is thinking, well, she knows it, so she's got my back in case I forget mm-hmm. it. And that, that is not something my wife is, is very fond of. <laughs> this is a hard thing in close relationships because, as I mentioned a moment before, brains, all brains work in different ways. And one of the things that our brains do is it's, it's sort of a, a great way to use the word outsource. In certain types of cognitive function, when we have outsourced certain types of information to external uh, devices or even to external to people, like saying, will you remember to do this? The brain deprioritizes uh, recording and remembering that information. My, uh, I'm not trying to turn this into a, a marriage and family <laughs> counseling phone call, but... One of the things I think any of us can do in any relationship where we're finding, you know, some level of misunderstanding and every relationship encounters misunderstanding is simply slow down and to understand that when emotional triggers are sparked, just they are in any love or close relationship, we're going to be getting, um, and we can speak really specifically about it, but we're going to be getting some neurochemical responses that likely interfere with information processing. This could be as severe as the amygdala hijack, which which is a full-on fight-or-flight response, but it could also be something where there are just some emotional triggers that are firing that are completely subconscious, but they are interfering with the way that the brain is, if you will, documenting what's going on. What's the antidote to that? Get into the prefrontal cortex. How do you do that? The easy answer is you slow down and you think about thinking. You bring awareness or, if you, if you wish, mindfulness to the moment and you say, you know, slow down, don't react, be curious, Listen. Now, can we talk about that some more? We're all in these traps, Jeff. This isn't your brain. This isn't her brain. This isn't any one person's brain. This is the way our brains work. And in the high pressure times we all live in, it's kind of what we're conditioned to is get things done fast, move on, be productive, you know, go, go, go. You know what? The world we live in now is not the world that our brains evolved to be optimized for. We got to work with them and um, help them help us get more of what we want out of life. 
And to that point, let, let's talk about the technology a bit. You know, distractions aren't necessarily anything new. And, and as you say in the book, you know, our response to a distraction at one time might have saved our life. So let's talk about technology and the distraction that technology often is on our ability to, to make some of these real connections. Well, the first phrase that I'd like to put out there is this. And it says, your brain will do more of whatever it's doing right now. Now, most of us through our work use technology. What was years ago, back in the day when I was at Apple and, you know, we were bringing these mind-bending or mind-blowing new products to the world, these were things that caused people's eyes to pop and, Mm -hmm. like, tears of joy sometimes to flow. And, you know, we just couldn't believe these things were possible. But they've all been integrated sort of into our baseline of what life is like right now. So there's a certain amount of time that we're spending invisibly with tech every day. It simply is. And the brain documents all of that stuff. The brain is constantly watching what you are doing and even what you are thinking and updating its maps of what it takes for you to to survive, to stay safe and alive, which, by the way, is its job, keeping you safe and alive, even much more than, you know, we say the brain's job is thinking. Well, sure, but it's thinking in service of keeping you safe and alive. So the brain assumes a certain amount of technology, which opens it to more technology, We get a lot of messages that, you know, be productive, do more, feel stress, come on, pound it, grind it, get it done, which tells the brain, okay, stress is part of what I should be doing, you know, make stress more acceptable. Um, And we sort of build up this way of being that is actually quite an artificial life relative to what it was even 10, 15, or 20 years ago. Now, enter the mobile phone. By the way, that first time I swiped my finger across that shiny screen, I mean, I could not believe my eyes. But I, and I'm sure many listening feel the same way. But we don't even know we're doing it anymore now. It simply has become a habituated action. And people in the United States, the research shows, are interacting with their phones. And this is individual interaction. So swiping the screen, pressing a button, opening an app, whatever it is. It's not sessions. It's individual actions. But they're touching that phone in the range of 3,500 to 5,500 times a day. Mm. 3,500 to 5,500 times a day. We're hooked. And the thing about the phones and primarily about the apps that run on them is many of them have been developed very specifically with the understanding of our motivation and reward cycles in the brain and to ride that roller coaster of motivation and promise of reward. And then reward, if you look at promise of reward, there are two outcomes. There's either you either get the reward or you have an error. Either of those, and especially the error, cues us cognitively based on our evolutionary biology to re-enter that cycle, try, try again. Now, many of those cycles that I've described, that loop of, you know, motivation, reward, error, want, leave them wanting more, motivation, don't let them leave, uh, don't let them break it. You know, like people say, kids who interact on Snapchat get a score of some point for every day they interact without interruption. Mm-hmm. At 103 days, you have a tremendous neurochemical how would I say, resistance to breaking that because it's so hooked into 103 days of motivation and reward. Now, many of these motivations and rewards are associated with dopamine cycles. 
And dopamine is a very, very interesting chemical. It turns out we actually understand less about it than we thought we did even a year ago. Mm. It's revealing a few mysteries. But I think people talk about dopamine because it's the one we seem to understand best. But there, there, there are so many chemicals in the brain and everyone has a unique cocktail. But the thing we do know about dopamine is it, it breaks down into chemicals associated with cortisol. And with cortisol, of course, being a stress chemical, it can be retained and carried in the body. So these, these tech cycles addict us and lure us in, but they break down into things that leave us with embodied stress. And I have yet to tell that to anybody who seems surprised to hear that. I think we all kind of know it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? We all kind of know it. You know, as, as, as I read this section of the book, I was reminded uh, of watching the, the opening ceremony of the Olympics a couple of weeks ago. And these hordes of young athletes from all over the world who were more concerned about recording the moment with their mobile devices than they were about just being in or living in the moment. You are so right. And the funny thing is, and you, that's, Jeff, you mentioning that shows, you know, how we've been conditioned to this. This is what we do. Now, the funny thing is, they will be able to watch on almost any medium that they wish to beautiful views of that moment that they could have simply been soaking in going, I've worked 20 years to get here and just feel this. But yes, you're right. We've been conditioned to think this is the thing we do. What kind of impact, Ellen, can, can simple gestures, things like smiling or, or eye contact have on, on our connection? Well, you know, we don't know everything about those things. We don't know everything about the way humans actually communicate. Um, there are many scientists, bona fide scientists, you know, at Stanford and Harvard, who actually, you know, will say we are only at the very tip of the iceberg of understanding how humans really communicate, how we think, and how we really are connected to each other. I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a scientist who researches that. And I know there are many who do. What we do know is that connection, both qualitatively and quantitatively, human connection and interaction continues to be the thing that brings people the most sense of real satisfaction, feeling part of something bigger, uh, feeling love and loved, even being seen by another person. You know, there are many times in my work and even in teaching where simply like having time where people can actually feel that they matter, that their thoughts make a difference is all it takes for them to step into more confidence, more sense of mastery of what they're working on, and a sense that sort of, I knew there was more to this than meets the eye, and now I want to do something with it. To answer your question very specifically, though, I've been running a little coffee shop experiment for about five years now, where you actually um, get to know the person's name, you, you know, make eye contact, you smile, you check in on how they're doing, and watch what happens afterward. And it's really interesting. Um, I can watch the people before me in a line, and you know, it's a pretty mechanical process. Then I would interact with the person. and that, I do that very selfishly. I do it because I really enjoy it. I feel kind of lost without it. 
there's often a very nice spark or an exchange, and then I watch two or three people down the line, one of two things happens. Either the person behind the counter is a little more friendly, and that awakens another person and starts this lovely sort of, you know, virtuous chain effect of interactions that sort of seems to change something in the room, or the person behind them, two or three people behind them, shut down with that. They don't want any more of that, and then things go back to that sort of dull, you know, that sort of that sort of transactional thing that I talk about in the TEDx talk. So I find that when I go back to coffee shops after a long period of time, sometimes people will remember me. Now, maybe that's because, I don't know, maybe I spilled something. I don't know. But I, I like to think it's because something stood out. They felt seen. They felt acknowledged. And we as humans, that's part of who we are. You know, a very large percentage of our brain and a huge part of the brain, a huge part of the brain's processing of information is associated with the centers that manage our our, our social uh, information, memories, emotions, interactions, the reading of signals on people's faces or in body language, gestures, things like this. And when we connect on that level, it's simply logic that we're connecting on a, on a richer cognitive level, level. We're engaging more brain functions. And yes, things are going to be more meaningful and more memorable when we do that. I know I try to practice this in a couple of ways, Ellen, and have thought about recently how I try to do this when, you know, say, boarding a plane and, and making eye contact with the flight attendant mm-hmm. as I'm getting on or smiling or, you know, saying something. At a restaurant, I'm always careful. I want to know the server's name. I want to acknowledge him or her every time they come to the table, even if it's just a, a thank mm-hmm. you. I want to stop what I'm in the middle of and just look up at them. Good. Uh, and I find that when I do those things, I get much better service. I think there's a correlation there uh, to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, yesterday, as I had just finished the book, my wife and I, on our date day, found ourselves at, uh, at, at our local Costco. And so as we walked, we were there for maybe an hour, and I made it a point to uh, you know, put away my phone. And as we walked through the uh, giant warehouse that is Costco, I made it a point to attempt to make eye contact with people headed toward me. And what I found is a lot of folks never looked at me, or if they looked mm-hmm. at me and saw that I was looking at them, they immediately looked away and, and, and weren't even around anymore to see my grin that would like my grin would start and they were already looking away. And I was like, oh, I, I missed that opportunity. And so, <laughs> so I just, have you seen yeah. that in any of your experiments where others are maybe either they're so engrossed in their tech or they're just they've been they've been um, uh, maybe it's tech's fault. Maybe it's not. They've sort of been conditioned to just not even bother. Well, I think that there there probably are some pretty complex things of psychology associated with that, but social interaction and cues to engage in social interaction are actually quite elaborate and involve certain levels of permissioning. Um, and so when imagine when I'm in the coffee line or when you're in the coffee line, there's an implicit message that you are going to interact. That's part of the deal and part of the subconscious assumption there. Uh-huh. You, you can't really order you, you, you can't really order a coffee at a coffee shop without some form of interaction. But at Costco, what I would think you're at any place where, you know, if you're walking through a park, people might smile at each other. If you were to be at your local farmer's market, people might smile at each other. But I would say my assumption would be that subconsciously people have come to Costco for what is a relatively uh, anonymous experience. It's a relatively 
productive and efficiency or maybe transactional oriented experience. They're not coming for a richer experience than that. So the, the friendly guy with the big smile who grins on them, they might flicker up their eyes to see if it's maybe somebody they went to school with or, you know, worked with or something. But the minute not, then of course, well, I think we're all dealing with a little bit of a sense of, of a lack of safety right now. But the, the thought is probably, who is this guy and what he, why is he smiling at me? <laughs> and I would say that it would not surprise me that at that point, the majority of people would shut down. Mm. Well, we tend to see uh, successful people, uh, Ellen says, oftentimes as lucky or, or gifted or simply born in the right place at the right time. I know growing up, that was kind of my, my default way of thinking about it. Uh, more often than not, though, it, it's, it's something else, isn't it, Ellen? It, it's a case of, with these successful people, of mastering their mind and being intentional about, uh, about mm-hmm. their decisions, right? Well, I love your question and the way you phrase it. And, you know, in in any life, there is always a combination of, of luck, gifts, and right place, right time. I certainly feel in my life, luck has played a tremendous role, being in the right place at the right time in Silicon Valley. I mean, I, I do feel that in terms of time and place, I I did, you know, I, I'm a very, I'm very grateful for that. I also believe luck is preparedness meeting opportunity. I hope I've also done a good job preparing. What I would want to say is I believe everyone can increase their feeling of luck, their feeling of gifts, and their feeling of being in the right place at the right time through practices that help them get beyond the conditioned ways of thinking that that tend to push people down and tend to leave us feeling diminished. This is a really important thing in leadership, Jeff, because we have to know that we're combating a lot of social, economic, uh, political, cultural, and other forms of pressure, and even global environmental pressure that make people think like, this world is not what I thought it would be. And so helping people drop in to more of who they are, what their purpose is, and to really sense what their gifts and their fortunes are and helping, I mean, even for leaders thinking about how can I make this a place where people are in the right place at the right time. And I don't say this naively or with, you know, Silicon Valley blinders on or anything like this. There are companies that I work with that are sometimes very, very different than companies we see here, but treating people well and encouraging people to find some of their purpose in their work, you know, to find a little bit of their why and what they do is available to all of us. It's available to everyone. And with that training, I've watched people become more confident or with that orientation, I don't want to say training, it's more of a mindset, but I've watched people become more confident, get this, more willing to take risks. And doesn't every business want their team to be willing to suggest new ideas, stretch out of their comfort zone, try things in new ways. And this is really a part of the psychological safety that I think can be created in leadership. And what I find is in extraordinary leaders, they were able to create a very large range of psychological safety where they had the courage to to really try bold and adventuresome things that if they'd been staying in a small comfort zone would not have been available to them. But everyone can expand their comfort zone and increase their their sense of psychological safety through brain-aware practices. This is available to all of us. Mm. 
Well, uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions, Ellen, that aren't directly related to the book itself. But but before I do that, I want to give you a chance to share with us uh, anything else you want to make sure that we walk away with. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so many things that I could think of. But I guess the main thing that I would say is in the same way anyone can get healthier get, by having exercise, whatever they choose for exercise, whether that's stretching in the morning or yoga or going for a walk or a hike or working out at the gym, all of us can have our bodies be healthier and more able by exercising them. So it is with the brain. All of us have access to much more depth and potential of ourself through understanding what our brain is, what our brain isn't, and how to mindfully work with it. You know, I wrote in my notes preparing for this, Jeff, our brains really are like puppies. And for those of us who have lived with or loved a puppy, you know, when we train them, they become really wonderful companions and, you know, huge parts of our lives. But when we don't train them, they can run all over doing what they want to do, firing off in different ways that don't actually leave us feeling like, you know, they, they put, it, put it this way, the house doesn't look so great afterward. <laughs> I believe we are more than our brains. Some of my peers do not. They believe it all happens in the neural correlates. And I'm not in a position to say what we are beyond our brains. But I do believe we have a sense inside ourselves that there's more to this than meets the eye. And learning to find that voice that that has that feeling and use that voice to direct the brain is a practice that I've seen improve many people's not only happiness, but their lives. Well, as one who has just taken a couple of his puppies uh, through some some training, uh, I can echo <laughs> much of what you said. It's definitely the way Good to go. Good dog. <laughs> Good boy. <laughs> well, Ellen, think about the books that you've read over the years. I know this is sort of a big picture question. It may be hard to narrow it down to, to two or three. But if you can, what would you say are the two or three titles that, that immediately jump out at you and, and come to mind as having had a big impact on you? A couple that jump out, and it was a wonderful question, and it's such a hard one to uh, to answer, but I think the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari had a huge impact on me. Um, I really, I read it a couple of years ago, and I really loved the, um, the very long-term view of human history and how we became the people we are today. I found it both um, very validating to some things that I had been thinking about and also very enriching. And it also added to my teaching because he asked some very good questions toward the end of the book about why we as humans have never really agreed to what we want as a species. So that was a memorable insight for me that, that the book provided. The other one is an unusual book, and I I will confess it took me more than 20 years to read it. It's called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig, and it's a very unusual meander through questions about philosophy and and, uh, sort of mysticism and science and sanity and insanity as well. Sanity and what we call insanity is a really important theme in the book. But the book caused me to challenge the dividing lines between so many of the things that we have really, you know, separated in the way we live our life today, separating art and science, separating sort of a sense of the spiritual with the sense of the the known or the provable. 
um, the sort of a sense of, of, of acceptance of ambiguity in life. And I really loved how that book opened up new thinking for me that as a person who grew up as very much interested in the arts but ended up um, studying and choosing a career in technology, uh, that I always had felt those two things were much more connected than most places in life. Apple, by the way, was an exception to that, but that most people or most places seem to think were a fit. And it, it helped me integrate and commit to the integration of art, science, uh, the known and the ambiguous, uh, proof and mystery, all of these things uh, on a much deeper level. So it was a tremendous gift to me to read that book. And then the third one I thought about is, I was thinking about this the other day, is I grew up a long time ago, and life was really different then. And if you got one good book for Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrated, that book would be with you for a very long time. And at an early age in my life, I think it was my parents, they told me it was Santa, but I'm pretty sure it was my parents, gave me some really great nature books, Little Golden Guides and some books by Roger Torrey Peterson. And I remember at very early age, maybe even before I could read, turning page after page of looking at subtle differences between different types of birds and looking at shapes of wings and, you know, maps that showed where these birds were and getting a sense of the natural world that became kind of a foundation for how I began to explore and navigate life. And I think, you know, sometimes I still even refer back to those books and think about how it helped me learn things about categorizing information or noticing differences between things. So I'd really be remiss if I didn't mention that those rather, you know, technical, if you will, early, early childhood books had a profound influence on the way I grew up in the world. Well, related to what we've been talking about, um, I think communicating in general, relating effectively to other people, public speaking more specifically, in my view, is about as key as any skill you can you can hone. And, and as a successful a keynote speaker, Ellen, a TEDx speaker, what are some of your tips for delivering an impactful and, and memorable public talk? Well, thanks for asking. So the first thing I'd say, it is a practice. My self-congratulatory comment after almost any talk I give is room for improvement. So <laughs> hopefully I'm, you know, continually working on improving. But the first thing is, is the, the more you love what you talk about, the more, the, the better your talk is going to be. So drop into your authenticity and really the things that really light you up. And the more that I connect with the things that feel like my purpose, and the, 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 the topics that I would rather talk about than anything else, the more joy I feel in talking about those and to my surprise and delight, the more the audience seems to enjoy it. You know, for a long time, I was very cautious about speaking because I felt my thoughts were too simple or too obvious or, anybody, or everyone knew it or anybody could do this. But the surprise for me over learning to, over, you know, working to become a better speaker and, and practice that is sometimes those things that seem simple to you are simple because they're your truth. They're those things that are really core to your being. And don't judge those as being insignificant simply because they don't have 42 studies behind them or something. Those are fun too. But yeah, so be authentic would be really an important thing. The other thing is, and this is a weird thing for someone to say who writes about the brain, but get out of your head. 
you know, get into that position where you're really almost, if you will, feeling what you're talking about as much as you are thinking about it. Um, I've messed up with that a few times. There have been times where I've worked really hard to memorize speeches and not get a single word wrong. And those are the times that I've, you know, stammered a bit and been awkward or ended up sort of, you know, even sometimes having a talk that I haven't felt good at all about. And the times where I've really dropped in and connected with the audience and really felt like there was that connection made, those are the times that I think I've, I've actually done better. Um, a very practical tip, keep your feet about shoulder width apart, you'll be more grounded and more comfortable. I tended to be a pacer walking back and forth, so don't pace the whole time, sort of stand for a while, take a step or two, stand for a while, I'm still practicing that. Another thing is, and this has to do with eye contact, if you're lucky enough to stand on a stage and face an audience, make eye contact, real eye contact for a sentence with someone in the audience and really let it land with them um, and then move to another person. This is so much more effective for everyone in the audience than that thing that, that you know we're usually first taught to do, which is sort of scan the audience and look at no one. <laughs> um, so it really, you know, giving a talk like anything is a type of interaction. It's a way of sharing and exchanging something. I don't know what that something is, but some sort of transmission between ourselves or this as the speaker and the audience or ourselves the audience and the speaker and the more authentic and real it is the more everyone including the speaker will enjoy it i i had to to laugh at myself a couple of weeks ago when i gave a talk and i decided to i was so proud of myself i decided to to connect more with the audience by getting down on the floor where they were i felt disconnected on the stage and then mm-hmm. that seemed to work early on but about three-fourths of the way through i realized i had been incessantly pacing back and forth which explained why i kept seeing the constant uh, peering up of heads uh, who were attempting to look around me throughout because i kept blocking the slides <laughs> So, so, so lesson learned there. Uh, be, be aware of, of, of what's behind you as well as what's in front of you. <laughs> That's a really good point. We, another time, we, we can talk about all kinds of gaffes and such that can happen while speaking, but there was a teleprompter, and the font size on the teleprompter was so small that <laughs> I couldn't even see it, and this was a talk I had to read. So my, my words uh, after myself after that were not only room for improvement, they were never again. <laughs> so I'm trying to move more to more spontaneous, um, more interactive ways of working with audiences. It seems to be nicer for all of us. Well, after uh, Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, what's left? Amazon? Uh, is that one you haven't worked <laughs> with yet? No. No, seriously, though, what's next for you? What, what are you and your team working on now that, uh, that you're excited about? Yeah, more of this. This is what I care about. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really committed to doing is understanding and better so that I can offer, hopefully, ways that people can understand, other people can understand, ways of working with their brains in these very challenging times to find more of the happiness, sense of purpose, love, you know, connection and well-being that I think is our human birthright. And I think it's getting harder in complicated and confusing times. And so I'm deeply committed to understanding kind of an answer to what Noah, what Yuval Noah Harari asks, and that is, what do we really want out of this experience of being human? And how can we work together to get there? Mm. 
Well, the book, again, is The Happiness Hack, How to Take Charge of Your Brain and Program More Happiness into Your Life. Ellen, this was a treat. Thank you so much again for taking time and and being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, and thank you to all the listeners, and I wish you all well. If my conversation with Ellen has struck a chord with you, I hope you'll share it on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you'd like to hang out. And if you do, be sure and tag me. I'm at the Jeff Brown on most social platforms. All the links and resources Ellen and I talked about, including more information on her book and the book she recommended, can be found at the page I've created especially for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 206 for episode 206. Special thanks to our sponsor FreshBooks cloud accounting software to take advantage of that free 30-day trial and get access to all of FreshBooks features just visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead want to give a special thanks to Tammy Livers in iTunes who calls read to lead an excellent way to start the day gives it five stars thank you so much Tammy if you'd like to leave a rating and review just go to read to lead podcast.com slash iTunes well that does it for this week I look forward to seeing you next time until then remember leaders read and readers leave.